Victims' Rights, Chapter 15, Personal Responsibility and Personal Liberty. If a man shall cause a field or vineyard to be eaten, and shall put in his beast, and shall feed in another man's field, of the best of his own field, and of the best of his own vineyard, shall he make restitution? If fire break out and catch in thorns, so that the stacks of corn, or the standing corn, or the field be consumed therewith, he that kindle the fire shall surely make restitution. Exodus 22, 5-6. The theocentric issue raised by this passage is the question of each person's legal obligations as a responsible steward over private property in a world in which God is the absolute owner of the world. As part of his provincial administration over the world, God establishes boundaries in life. These boundaries are ultimately ethical. The boundaries between covenant keepers and covenant breakers. The existence of these ethical boundaries is reflected in every area of life. Man cannot think or act apart from boundaries of various kinds. Among these ethical boundaries are legal boundaries separating the use of property. Boundaries are therefore inescapably tied to the legal issue of personal responsibility before God and man. God parcels out property to his subordinates. The very phrase, parcels out, reflects the noun, a parcel. God places specified units of land under the administration of specific individuals, families, and institutions. This division of authority is an aspect of God's overall system of the division of labor. Responsibility for the administration of specific property units can therefore be specified by law. The allocation of legal responsibility matches the allocation of property. God holds specific people responsible for their stewardship over specific pieces of property. This enables owners to evaluate their own performance as stewards, and it also allows the free market and God-ordained governmental authorities to evaluate owners' specific performance. The ultimate issue is each person's stewardship in history and God's judicial response in history at the final judgment. The temporal institutional issues of ownership stewardship are covenantally related to this ultimate issue. These verses make plain at least three facts. First, the Bible affirms the moral and legal legitimacy of the private ownership of the means of production. Fields and cattle and crops are owned by private individuals. Second, private property rights, legal immunities from action by others, are to be defended by the civil government. The state can and must require those people whose activities injure their neighbor or their neighbor's property to make restitution payments to those injured. Third, owners are therefore responsible for their own actions and for the actions of their subordinates, including wandering beasts. This combination of one, privately owned property, two, personal liability, and three, predictable court enforcement of private property rights is the foundation of capitalism. It surely was a major aspect of the West's long-term economic growth. The Wandering Animal We begin with the case of the wandering animal. It wanders from its property and invades another man's cornfield. It eats some of this corn. The owner of the beast owes the victimized neighbor the equivalent of whatever has been destroyed. The owner of the beast the owner of the beast must not shortchange the victim. He pays from the best of his field. There is an additional theocentric principle involved here. The legal principle is this. The injured party is entitled to the replacement of his damaged goods by the best of the responsible party's possessions. What is the theocentric principle that this legal principle reflects? 
It is this. God, in imposing an appropriate restitution payment from rebellious mankind, is entitled to the best that man has to offer. This is why man was not allowed under the old covenant to bring to God's sacrificial altar any injured or blemished animal. Leviticus 1.10 Cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. Malachi 1.14 when Ananias and Sapphira brought only a part of their pledged money to the church, but claimed that they were bringing in all of it, God killed them, Acts 5, 1 through 10. They had violated a fundamental biblical principle. They became publicly cursed deceivers, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things, Acts 5, 11. This theocentric principle governing restitution to God points to the ultimate principle governing the atonement. Only a perfect offering for sin can placate the God of perfect wrath. Anyone who attempts to bring a blemished sacrifice to the altar of God will be destroyed. This, of course, is the underlying soteriological requirement that made necessary the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Only a perfect man, God's own son, can serve as an acceptable sacrifice for sinful mankind. Hebrews 2, 14-18, 9-12-14. A sinful man will perish eternally if he attempts to shortchange God by offering anything on Judgment Day in place of exclusive faith in the true Mediator and High Priest Jesus Christ. Fences Reduce Conflicts The Bible affirms that those who violate fences or property lines must make full restitution to the economically injured neighbor. The assessment of harm is easier to make than under common ownership. His cows ate this row of corn in my cornfield. The owner of the damage-producing animals is responsible. Responsibility and ownership are directly linked under a system of private property rights. Under a system of private ownership, property lines are in effect cost-cutting devices, for they serve as cost-assessing devices. Without clearly defined property rights for men, and therefore clearly defined responsibilities, the rights of property, God's living creatures, and a created environment under man's dominion, Genesis 9, 1-17, will be sacrificed. Carefully defined property rights also help to reduce social conflicts. Dale's writes, Unrestricted common property rights are bound to lead to all sorts of social, political, and economic friction, especially as population pressures increase, because in the nature of the case, individuals have no legal rights with respect to the property when its government owner follows a policy of anything goes. Notice, too, that such a policy, though apparently neutral as between conflicting interests, in fact always favors one party against the other. Technologically, swimmers cannot harm the polluters, but the polluters can harm the swimmers. When property rights are undefined, those who wish to use the property in ways that deteriorate it will inevitably triumph every time over those who wish to use it in ways that will not deteriorate it. Common ownership of large bodies of water, when coupled with an opportunity to pass on private cost of polluted production, increases the extent of water pollution. It is a bad system for the swimmers of this world. In questions of legal responsibility, there can be no neutrality. It is the task of biblical exegesis to establish the ethical and legal foundations that enable civil judges to do the following. 1. Identify the winners and the losers. 2. Adjudicate cases properly in the sight of God. 
And three, determine what is fair compensation to the losers from any unauthorized winners. One thing is certain, we cannot hope to attain a perfectly safe world. There are always risks in life. We are mortal. We are not omniscient. Transferring risk. Each owner is also responsible for whatever actions his animate or inanimate objects do that injure others. A fire that a man kindles on his land must be kept restrained to his property. If the fire spreads to his neighbor's field, he is fully accountable for all the damages. Men therefore have an incentive to take greater care when using potentially dangerous tools or techniques. The problem of pollution should be subsumed under the general principle of responsibility for fire. A fire is a physical cause of physical damage. From the case law example in Exodus 22.5, it is clear that the fire which a man starts is his responsibility. He cannot legally transfer risk to his neighbor without his neighbor's consent. The Bible is not talking here about some shared project in which both men expect a profit, such as burning fields to get rid of weeds or unwanted grass. In such a mutually shared project, the case law example of the man who rents his work animal to a neighbor but who stays with the animal the whole time is applied. The neighbor is not required to pay anything beyond the hiring fee to the owner, Exodus 22, 1-14. If the animal is hurt or killed, the neighbor owes nothing. There is no doubt that the fire starter is responsible for all subsequent fires that his original fire starts. Sparks from a fire can spread anywhere. A fire beginning on one man's farm can spread over thousands of acres. Fire is therefore essentially unpredictable. Its effects on specific people living nearby cannot be known with precision. The uncertainty, meaning the statistical unpredictability of specific individual consequences, is the factor that governs the rule of restitution for damage-producing fires, as well as laws relating to the regulation of fire hazards. Insurable Risk the existence of fire insurance does not invalidate this analysis of the economics of specific effects. While it is sometimes possible for a person to buy fire insurance, the reason why fire insurance is available at all is because companies insure many different regions, therefore taking advantage of the law of large numbers. They can insure specific properties economically only because fires have known effects in the aggregate. If there were no known statistical pattern to fires in general, insurers would not insure specific properties against fire damage. This is not to say that the following arrangement should be prohibited by law. A person who wishes to begin a business which is known to be dangerous approaches others who could be affected. I'll make you a deal, he says. I will pay for all increases in your insurance coverage if you let me begin this business in the neighborhood. If they agree, and if the insurance companies agree to write the policies, then he has met his obligations. He has made himself economically responsible for subsequent damages. Instead of paying for damages after the fact, he has paid in advance by providing the added insurance premiums necessary to buy the insurance. What if some resident says, no, the prospective producer of damage can then offer to buy him out by buying his property? If the offer is accepted, the prospective damage danger producer can then either keep the property or sell it to someone who is willing to live with the risk if the discount on the land selling price is sufficiently large. But if the original owner refuses to sell and also refuses to accept the offer regarding insurance premiums, then the first man should not be allowed to force out the original owner. 
If he begins the da dangerous production process, the existing property owner can legitimately sue for damages. The court may require a money payment from the danger producer to the potential victim. The court need not necessarily prohibit the activity altogether. This decision by the judges requires that judges do the best they can in estimating the costs and benefits to the community, including the perceived value to citizens everywhere of the preservation by the state of private property rights. They cannot estimate perfectly, for they cannot know the psychic cost and benefits involved in the minds of the conflicting parties, but they can make general unscientific estimations given the image of God in all men and given the created environment in which all men live. This is an important application of biblical revelation to economics. If there is no universal humanity, no universal human nature, and no creator who serves as the basis for man's image, and no creation governed by the creator in terms of his value and his laws, then it is impossible for the judges legitimately to have confidence in their estimation of social cost, social benefits, private costs, and private benefits. Without our knowledge of objective economic value provided by God's plan and his image in man, objective economic value becomes epistemologically impossible. Judges would then be blind in a sea of exclusively subjective economic values, a world in which it is philosophically impossible for men to make interpersonal comparisons of subjective utility. The Principle of the Fire Code in the case of a single violator or a few potential violators, there are two reasons justifying the coercive intervention of civil government. First, to use the biblical example of fire, a man who permits a fire to get out of control may see an entire town burned to the ground. There is no way economically that he can make full restitution. In fact, it would be almost impossibly expensive to estimate the value of the destroyed physical property, let alone the loss of life or the psychological anguish of the victims. Therefore, in high-risk situations, the civil government can legitimately establish minimum fire prevention standards. Analogously, the civil government can also legitimately establish medical quarantines to protect public health. Leviticus 13.14 Carl Breidenbaugh, in his study of urban life in 17th and early 18th century colonial America, discusses this problem in detail. The specter of fire has ever haunted the town dweller. This necessary servant may, amidst crowded town conditions, buildings of inflammable construction, and the combustible materials of daily housekeeping and commerce become his deadly enemy. Even in Europe, the means of fighting fire were very crude in the 17th century, and only toward its close did the great cities driven by a series of disasters begin to evolve a system for combating it. Massachusetts passed laws in 1638 and 1646 that forbade smoking tobacco out of doors, not because of Puritan prudery, but because of the fear of fire. A similar law was passed in non-Puritan Philadelphia in 1701. English curfew laws were passed not to keep people off the streets at night, as they have been used against juveniles and rioters in American cities in the 20th century, but to stop people from keeping fires burning in their homes at night. Boston passed such a law in 1649. A bell ringer was hired to ring the bell at 9 p.m. and 4.30 a.m., 
Fires were not permitted in homes between these hours, unless they were covered. New Amsterdam, which later became New York City, passed a similar law in 1647. Building codes were established, as well as local fire departments, yet a series of devastating fires swept through Boston in the 17th century, 1653, 1676, 1679, 1682, and 1691. The city was struck again in 1711, the worst fire ever known in the colonies, when 100 homes were burned, and others were deliberately blown up with gunpowder to keep the fire from spreading. The great problem was to protect movable property from thieves, and Boston subsequently established fire wardens who had legal authority to remove personal property from burning buildings to a safe place. Charlestown, Charleston, South Carolina, was devastated by fires in 1698, 1700, and 1740. Only Philadelphia, a city of brick houses, was spared. Other towns adopted brick-only building codes for chimneys and even for entire homes in the 18th century. Publicly financed chimney sweeps inspected chimneys, the single greatest cause of fires in these years. New York had weekly chimney inspections for 20 years, beginning in 1697, and the city experienced no major fires. Such measures represented an infringement on personal freedom, and they increased cost to taxpayers, but they were necessary to help protect people from each other's mistakes, mistakes for which the person responsible could not have afforded to pay. No omniscience. Men are not omniscient, therefore information must be paid for. Accurate information is even more expensive. Any approach to economics that does not honor this principle from start to finish will be filled with errors. Individual sparks from a fire are unpredictable in their effects. We can make guesses about the overall effects of a fire, but an area of uncertainty is inescapable. Living next door to a fire starter may be tolerable. Farmers set fires to burn grasses or timber, for example. We do not call for a complete banning of all open fires. We do make people responsible for damage produced by fires that they start. The greater the damage of fire, the more concerned nearby residents must be. Sometimes the public bans fires altogether. Because no one can know everything, it is impossible to preserve life by eliminating every possible danger before any action can be taken. It would make human action impossible. We are not God. Society must not expect people to perform as if they were God. Thus, there must always be limited legal liability in life. Nevertheless, for those actions that are known to be dangerous, people must be made legally responsible for their actions. This does not justify holding people fully responsible for actions made in terms of earlier knowledge. With greater knowledge comes greater responsibility, Luke 12, 47-48. If society tries to impose damages retroactively on actions that were taken yesterday based on yesterday's information, it would destroy the legal foundation of progress. There can be no life without risk and uncertainty. We must not strive to build a zero-risk world. What we must do is to restrain those who would impose added known risks in the lives of neighbors without the latter's permission. We find the legal rule that provides this restraint in Exodus 22, 5-6 externalities. A man should not be prosecuted for polluting, defacing, or otherwise lowering the value of his own land, so long as his actions do not have measurable physical effects on anyone else's life, health, or property. 
Because it is his own land, he has internalized the cost of operation. By internalize, I do not mean simply a mental calculation. I mean that his property alone suffers from his mistakes. He risks starting a fire on his own property, or he runs a herd of cattle on his own property. The man making the estimate of benefits is the same person who makes the estimate of cost. It is the same man who will reap what he sows. Once he sells a section of his land, he no longer internalizes cost and benefits on the section that was sold. Another person is now involved, his neighbor. The first man must not be allowed to pass on to his neighbor the risks of living next door to a person who sets fire on his property. The fire starter cannot legally transfer to his neighbor the generally known but highly unpredictable specific individual production cost of fire. Economic analysis must begin with the Bible's assessment of personal responsibility for a man's actions. It must begin with the presupposition of the rights, legal immunities, of private property. These rights must be protected by civil law and custom. Conclusion by assigning to individuals the economic and legal responsibilities of ownership, God imposes on individuals the burden of assessing the costs and benefits of their actions. There is no escape from this economic responsibility. No decision is still a decision. If an asset is squandered, the owner loses. The chief failure of what is commonly referred to to as collective ownership is that no individual can be sure that his assessment of the costs and benefits of a particular use of any asset is the same assessment that those whom he represents would make. The tendency is for individuals who are legally empowered to make these representative decisions to decide in terms of what is best for them as individuals. There is also a tendency for the decision maker to make mistakes, since he cannot know the minds and desires of the community as a whole. The common property tends to be wasted unless restraints on its use are imposed by the civil government. The positive feedback signals of high profits for the users are not offset by equally constraining negative feedback signals. Users of a scarce economic resource benefit highly as immediate users, yet they bear few costs as diluted responsibility collective owners. Thus, in order to save the property from exploitation, the civil government steps in and regulates users. This leads to political conflicts. The biblical solution to this problem is to establish clear ownership rights, legal immunities for property. The individual assesses costs and benefits in terms of his scale of values. He represents the consumer as an economic agent only because he has exclusive use of the property as legal agent. He produces profits or losses with these assets in terms of his abilities as an economic steward. The market tells him whether he is an effective agent of the competing consumers. The legal system simultaneously assigns responsibility for the administration of these privately owned assets to the legal owners. It becomes the owner's legal responsibility to avoid damaging their neighbors through the use of their privately held property.